this morning you may have suffered or you may currently be suffering. You may be in a very similar situation that David found himself in. And I just wanna encourage you this morning to cry out to the Lord. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. You're listening to Doxology, a sermon series through seven essential psalms. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's grab a seat this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get a Bible to you. And if you have a mobile device, you can jump on the Bible app and look under events. We have all of the uh, quotes and sermon um, notes on the Bible app. So follow along on the event. Uh, We are going to turn to Psalm 69. So let's go ahead and do that. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 69. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we will grab one and hand it to you. All right. We're reading from the English Standard Version, Psalm 69. Look at verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents." 
For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him and the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this morning with a sobering and even despairing psalm. And we ask, Lord, that you would illuminate this text to us by your Holy Spirit We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher and that you would remind us of what Jesus taught us, that we today, Lord, would be equipped and encouraged and edified and, Lord, even challenged. And we ask, Lord, that your name would be glorified and exalted and that you would draw men to yourself. We thank you that that happened at Calvary and that happens as your word is declared, as the gospel is preached you continue, even in these last days, continue to be exalted and glorified. And so, Lord, we ask that you do that today in this church, in this community. We thank you for Shoreline. We thank you, Lord, for Lakewood Ranch, Bradenton, Sarasota, and the many pulpits today around this community. Lord, we ask that your word would would fill those pulpits, your word would fill the mouths of the pastors in our community, that today, Lord, you would be exalted and the church would be equipped. We ask, Lord, Uh, for there to be much fruit uh, from the gospel proclamation today here and around this region. We ask, Lord, that you would work in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I want to start today with a quote. It's a quote that I came up with, so sorry about that. Um, Not quoting Spurgeon today. But here's a quote that I came up with, and I just want to kind of test it out this morning as we get started. And here's the quote. The quote is, your friends define your affections and your enemies define your convictions. Let's camp out on that thought just for a minute. C.S. Lewis wrote that friendship is the product of one person turning to another person and looking at something, some object, some um, maybe thing that they both enjoy and saying, oh, you too? I thought I was the only one. Uh, So if you wanna know what you love most or what you're most affectionate about, then you turn to the people that you closely identify with or the people that you are friends with. So if all of your friendships, uh, the people closest to you, are all nominal in their faith, if they all just kind of like, you know, focus their um, attention on drinking or on fitness or on their wealth or on the music that they love and that's it, then that's probably what you are affectionate about. If all of your friendships are like people that are dialed into the gospel and they are focused on, like you get together and let's just talk theology, then that's probably what you're affectionate about. Uh, Your friends define your affections. But on the flip side of that, just consider this, your enemies define your convictions. Uh, Now you might say, Pastor, I don't have any enemies. 
I'm just a likable guy. I'm a friendly guy. I smile a lot. And I got all friends. I don't have any enemies. I would say, eh, then you probably haven't formulated strong convictions yet. Or you aren't being honest or bold about your convictions. If you're here this morning as a Christ follower, believe me, you have enemies. They're all around you. I'm not saying they're here this morning, but we have enemies all around us. Don't get suspect. In February 2015, uh, 21 Libyan Coptic Christians were beheaded by the group we know as ISIS for their faith. Believe me, in the world today, there are some who are not neutral about where you stand as a follower of Christ. So to say, I don't have any enemies, is to say, I haven't actually read my Bible. Because when we look in the Bible, we see enemies everywhere, enemies of the people of God. Uh, Just a quick survey through the scriptures, the Bible tells us that Israel was constantly surrounded by her enemies. From the very beginning, we see the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden, and we realize there is a battle against God's supremacy, against God's plan of salvation, even against God's Son. And and we look, we see that there's Satan and there's fallen angels and there's a host of nations that continually come against Israel. We have uh, all these different nations from the Egyptians to the Amalekites to the Philistines to the Ammonites, the Perizzites, the Not-So-Brites. All of these different nations are coming against God's people. And often, God allowed these groups to come against his people to chastise his people or to chasten them for holiness. But the people never listened. And so eventually, the Assyrian Empire comes and basically decimates the northern ten tribes. And then Babylon comes and and carries away most of of Israel uh, captive to Babylon. Later, Nehemiah and Ezra, they kind of come down to make reforms and kind of rebuild Jerusalem. But they're constantly uh, being uh, opposed. Uh, We even have Queen Esther. And if it weren't for her mediation... Uh, then all of Israel could have been wiped out from this guy Haman, who, by the way, was a descendant of Agag, who was one of the Amalekites, uh, kings, who originally was coming against David and Saul centuries earlier, and even uh, Moses. And so then we get to the New Testament, and we see Jesus, the king of the Jews. Uh, We see his incarnation, and from the very beginning, from the very first few years of his birth, there's Herod attempting to murder uh, all of the children through mass infanticide. Eventually, Jesus begins his public ministry. We know as Jesus is beginning to preach, he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand, and there's great opposition to his message from his own countrymen. Jesus is opposed by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by the scribes, by the Sanhedrin, even by his own countrymen, his own followers. One of them betrays him to death by crucifixion. Then we get to the book of Acts, and the church arrives on the scene, and what do we see? We see the message of the gospel going out, and then immediately opposition everywhere uh, the message uh, takes root. And so we get later into the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul, and it seems like everywhere he goes, he's not making just friends, but lots of enemies, and people want to kill him, and they're enemies of the cross of Christ. He told the church in Philippi, there are enemies of the cross of Christ. We need to know that. And Paul made his lion's share of enemies as he stood for righteousness and the gospel. And we will as well. So it shouldn't surprise us this morning that you and I have enemies. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to intimidate you. I'm not trying to make you say it's us versus everyone. But we have enemies. And we need to know that today. There's enemies to the supremacy of God, to the salvation plan of God, and to the Son of God. Now, today, if you're like, well, who are these enemies? Who are the enemies that are out there in the world? And is there 
people who are against each other, yes. All you have to do is just go to a little app called Twitter. That's all you have to do. If you want to see people who are against each other, go to Twitter. Uh, it is not a, an estimate, but an accurate um, stat from Twitter.com itself. They said that 6,000 people send tweets every second. That's an average, every second. Uh, 350,000 tweets per minute, 50 million tweets per day, and 200 billion tweets per year. So in the time that I took to say that sentence, 80,000 people just tweeted their opinions and their hatred, okay? And, and so what are the people posting? Have you been on Twitter? Have you been on, on any Facebook, social media? They're, they're opposed to a lot of different things. Uh, Democrats are posting their disapproval for Republicans. Republicans are posting their dislike for uh, Democrats. Uh, it seems like uh, you've got all these different opposing groups. You've got Arminians who don't like the reform group. The reform group don't like the Arminians. You've got people who are like, I don't know which one I am. I don't have a clue who's who, but they all sound mad at each other. You've got Shiites versus Sunni. Uh, you've got Red Sox versus Yankees. You've got blondes mad at brunettes and everyone's suspect of the redheads. And so we, we've just got this like vitriol happening. Uh, in fact, if you were to go uh, on Google and type in people against, just two words, people against, you will yield 3.4 billion search results. We are a saturated culture that is against one another. In Psalm 69, King David is facing some great opposition. He's being attacked by enemies all around him. And so much so that he feels like he's drowning in despair. And so he cries out to God to save him. And then he sings one of the uh, most heavy, sorrow-filled songs that's ever been written. I believe that if David knew about country music, Psalm 69 may have been a country song. <laughs> you know, you play country music backwards, you get your dog back, your wife back, your house back, your truck back, that whole thing. Uh, well, Psalm 69, uh, he's pretty much at the end of everything. He's lost everything. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan says this about the psalm. He says, uh, perhaps in no psalm in the whole Psalter is the sense of sorrow profounder or more intense than in this psalm. The soul of the singer pours itself out in unrestrained abandonment to the overwhelming and terrible grief which consumes it. Psalm 69 is known as an imprecatory psalm. Uh, these are, there's a few of them. There's about five of them, uh, four or five. Psalm 7, Psalm 35, uh, Psalm 108 are absolutely, and there's a few others, but those are absolutely known as imprecatory psalms. Uh, let me, let's define that. What is an imprecatory psalm? Uh, William Barrick, he's the professor of Old Testament at the Master Seminary, says this. An imprecation is a curse or invocation of judgment. In the ancient Near East, Curses were written into treaties between kings or nations to stipulate punishments for violation of the treaty. This is not in opposition to the New Testament teaching to love and forgive one's enemies. There's some verses. It is our prerogative to pray for God to avenge wrongs because vengeance belongs to him. Okay? Now, the imprecatory psalms are not sanitized. They, did, they haven't been cleaned up. They're not rated PG necessarily. They are raw, they're real, and they anticipate God's judgment against sin. The Psalms don't tell us to just suppress your anger uh, or just grin and bear it when you're wronged. That's not the idea at all. But neither do they instruct us to go out and seek revenge 
uh, in our anger when we're wronged. They, uh, they teach us to ask God to intervene. And these psalms allow us to submit our anger to God and to trust that, that God is going to act as he sees fit. But listen, don't misunderstand. Uh, though these are honest words, in these uh, imprecatory psalms, these are not David just out, like lashing out in his anger, lashing out uh, with an outburst of emotion because he's got a bad temper. That's not the idea. These are calculated petitions uh, towards a just God to act on behalf of someone who's experiencing injustice. And this idea isn't just in the Old Testament. Jesus pronounced woes against wicked cities. Paul pronounced anathema to those who did not love the Lord or who preached a false gospel. And he actually had an expectation that God would bring retribution upon a very specific, troublesome coppersmith named Alexander. Listen, it's not abnormal as a follower of God to have enemies. It's actually biblical. And as we open Psalm 69, if you've ever experienced opposition from someone unjustly, then this psalm is for you. If Psalm 51 were a psalm uh, praying for mercy, then Psalm 69 is a psalm praying for justice. So let's outline this psalm together. There's a lot of verses to cover, so we're going to kind of move quickly through them. On the screen, here's the outline that we're going to follow. Verses 1 through 12, um, I didn't come up with these. These are from guys smarter than me, but I'm going to borrow it. Uh, David's distress in verses 1 through 12, David's distress or you could say David's drowning. Uh, then verses 13 through 21, David's desperation. Have you ever been there? Just desperate. We see in verses 22 through 28, David's denunciation. He's going to denounce his enemies. That's the imprecation. And then we have David's declaration of worship in verses 29 through 36. Okay? So let's begin by looking at David's distress. Look at the beginning or even the heading of Psalm 69. Look above verse 1. He says, To the choir master, according to lilies of David. Now, we don't know what the tune according to lilies is. We don't have it. It wasn't preserved. We didn't have an audio recording of it. But it's the same tune that Psalm 45 is set to. So Psalm 45 and Psalm 69 are set to the same tune. We don't know what according to lilies, but it's that song. Uh, look at the first four words of the psalm, verse 1. First four words are, save me, O God. You could frame it this way, Hosanna, come now. It's a prayer of desperation. Hosanna is not necessarily a worship term, but a prayer. Come save me. It's a desperate plea. And this gives you a small idea of what kind of psalm we're diving into. Speaking of diving, look at the next part. He says, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Note two times the word deep. David is praying a prayer of absolute distress. Think about being in a flood. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Well, we live in Florida, so we know a little bit of what it's like to be. Is it ever going to stop raining? I don't know if this is going to happen. I guess we'll wait till September happens, but... Uh, we understand what it's like to be near a flood or in a flood. And some of you have had your home flooded or you've been in an experience like that. And when someone is in a flood or they're actually drowning uh, in deep water or in a flood, unless there's outward intervention, unless the flood is stopped and then it's drained, or if you're drowning, unless someone reaches in and pulls you out or you find level ground or a way to prop yourself up or pull yourself out, you will surely die. That's the level of anxiety and feeling overwhelmed that David is in. He's 
basically dying by drowning in a flood. What a vivid picture of being overwhelmed, surrounded, stuck, and suffocating. You ever experienced that? Have you ever been in a situation where you had to look up and say, I'm trying to look to my family, I'm trying to look to my friends, I'm trying to look to my spouse, I'm trying to look to people of God, and no one's seeming to help. Lord, save me, O God. Well, look at verse 3. He says, I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes are growing dim with waiting. So his voice is dry. His eyes are burning from crying and yelling. And then he says in verse 4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Now, as I'm getting older, this verse is applying less and less to me, or more and more, I guess. More in number than the hairs of my head. I'm losing hair on my head. But David is saying it's, it's really outnumbered. It's, it's, you, you can't count the amount of enemies that are coming against me. And there's really no reason why they hate me. He says, those who hate me are without a cause. Now, you may have noticed when we did the scripture reading earlier, but a few times in this psalm, some of the verses are going to jump off the page because they are quoted in the New Testament. And this is one of those times. Verse 4, this is quoted by Jesus in John chapter 15. Uh, And he, in John 15, was referring to the rejection that he would face from the world and that his followers would also face. So he's quoting um, this uh, part of the psalm. We're going to see some other verses that are fulfilled uh, in this psalm as well. But notice verse 4. He says, they're mighty and they're attacking me with lies. What did I steal or what I did not steal must I now restore it? Apparently they falsely accused David of stealing something. And he's thinking, I'm not guilty. I'm not going to return something that didn't uh, belong to someone else that I never stole. These are false accusations which leads him to say in verse 5, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I have done are not hidden from you. Now, like we learned last week, David could have prayed last week in Psalm 51. He could have said, well, I am guilty of stealing a woman from her husband. And God knows how full well uh, I am a sinner. And so here he's saying, Like, God knows what I've done wrong. I've sinned. I'm not perfect. Maybe in this situation, David had sinned. But he says, but not to the extent that they're saying. And so though he's committed awful sin in the past, in this situation, he's not guilty of of theft. Verse 6, he says, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord. Let those who seek you uh, not be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. His prayer is that he wouldn't bring shame or dishonor to the people of God. It's one thing if people attack you one-on-one, but I don't want the whole uh, family of God, the people of God, uh, to be embarrassed or humiliated because of uh, this situation. But then he says in verse 7, it's for your sake that I've borne reproach, that dishonors covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Notice with me, church, that it wasn't just for his sin that David was ridiculed, but it was for his passion and his commitment to the Lord. He says, it was for your sake that I'm bearing this reproach. He says in verse 9 that zeal for the house of God has consumed me, literally in the Hebrew, it's eaten me up. It's it's consumed me. It's eating me up from the inside. And, And when people disgrace God, they're disgracing me, David says. His zeal uh, here was in connection to his desire to build a temple. 
And because he had blood on his hands from being a warrior, uh, God said, you're not going to be the one who builds it. But his son Solomon was the one who indeed finished the work uh, or completed the work. But David had a zeal for the house of God, a zeal for the temple. He wanted a dwelling place for God. Now, verse 9, you may have noticed, is quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted two times. Um, first, this was what the disciples thought of when Jesus ran out the money changers in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Remember that? John chapter 2, one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. Uh, they're, they're exchanging money and they're taking uh, worship from people and they're, they're exploiting it for money, which I think is awful. And that should always be condemned. And so Jesus begins to flip the tables over and he's running out the money changers. And the disciples look at that and they remember this verse. Yeah, for, for zeal for your house has, has eaten me up. It's consumed me. That's a picture of what we see here uh, with Jesus. Jesus had the same zeal for the glory of God, for the house of God. But it's quoted another place. It's actually quoted by Paul in Romans 15.3. And there he, he quotes the part about the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And he also uh, has this in reference to Jesus. And in context there, Paul is saying that Jesus didn't come to please himself, but he came to build others up and bear more pain than he inflicted. And Paul says that's a picture of what we should do. I got to admit, that's hard for me to bear with the failings of the weak. But Paul says that should be the attitude in the body of Christ. We should be willing to bear with the weak and not just condemn them, but allow the reproach to fall on us. Well, here in verses 10 through 12, it goes from insult to injury. Look at verse 10. He says, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, you'd imagine the people would say, oh, I feel bad now. But no, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I was in a place of mourning, you would think they would then have mercy. But no, I became a byword to them. And then he says, I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Notice what's happening here. It's bad enough when people ridicule you and they mock you when you're doing something wrong, right? When you're sinning. You almost expect it. Yeah, I really blew that one, so I expect the ridicule. But it's painful when people disparage you when you do what's right. So David here, he's weeping, he's humbling himself, he's mourning, he's fasting. His penitent devotion to God is looked at with disdain, and it's a joke. It's a punchline. Uh, they bring him up at the city council meeting, and even at the bar, they're singing songs that mock him. Now, those who sit in the gate are those who would make the prominent decisions in the city, uh, and those who are known as drunkards, obviously, they comprise the least influential. So he's saying everyone from the most influential to the least influential, those involved in politics and those in the pub are all mocking me. They were even writing songs about him. They wrote songs like, well, David has killed his tens of thousands. Now they're making music to mock him. But notice how David responds in verse 13. Let's look at David's desperation. What would you do in that situation? Your back's up against the wall. You feel like you're drowning. Everyone around you is mocking you. You're trying to be penitent. You're trying to repent, and it's not, it's not working. Uh, David's desperate, and you would be as well. Verse 13, but as for me... My prayer is to you, O Lord. I'm not going to get vengeance on them. I'm not going to take this into my hands. I'm going to pray. And at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. David says, hey, let people point and laugh and gossip and sing their mocking songs. But as for me, I'm just going to pray. He says, at the acceptable time, Lord, I trust that you're going to answer me. I believe it. You're not going to leave me because God is a God of steadfast love, has said, and he's a God of saving faithfulness. He says in verse 14, deliver me 
from sinking in the mire. He mentions that mire again from verse 2. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the, here it is again, the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me. It's up to my neck. Lord, help it not to go over my head. Let not the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. He's asking for deliverance. And listen, his deliverance is not going to come from friends. It's not going to come from family. And it's obviously not going to come from his enemies. And though everyone would forsake him, God would not let him drown. So he says in verse 16, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I'm in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. Did you guys catch all the verbs? Get your pen out. Let's go back and circle these for a minute. Start back in verse 14. Circle the word deliver me. That needs to be circled. That's a verb. Deliver me. Answer me in verse 16. Turn to me. So circle turn. Hide not your face. Circle hide not. Um, Make haste to answer me. Just circle all of that. Make haste to answer me. Uh, Draw near. Circle that. Redeem me. Ransom me. Okay, David is asking for the intervention, the active work of God in his life. A lot of us in the midst of these situations, we turn away from faith. And we, we covered this in the Habakkuk series, but we lose heart because what we believe about God is challenged by something that we think is true about God. But then we're thrown into a scenario where, uh-oh, God's not coming through like I thought he was. And so now we have a moment where we start doubting God's faithfulness and his goodness, or we turn in faith and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you through this no matter what the odds are. If we lose the child, I'm going to trust you, Lord. If we lose the marriage, we're going to trust you, Lord, right? You may have an unbelieving husband. You go, he's going to leave me. I don't know what to do. I'm going to trust you, Lord. You don't look at the end of it and say, well, we lost the baby. God's not faithful. God hates me. God's against me. Well, this scenario didn't turn out the way I thought and we had to declare bankruptcy or we had to go through, God's not faithful. No, we continue to look to him. And so David's asking for the active work of God in his life. And he's trusting that God will come through because God is intimately involved. He says, I'm just your servant. I'm appealing to you as my master. Come and defend me. Notice the intimacy, church, in verse 19. He says, you know my reproach. And my shame and my dishonor, you know it, Lord. And my enemies, my foes are all known to you. Guys, God was not unacquainted with David's situation. We talk about the imminence of God and the transcendence of God theologically. God's not so transcendent. He's not a, we're not deists where we believe God kind of set the world in motion and then just sits back in his easy chair and just enjoys with popcorn what's happening in the world scene. No, we believe God is imminent. He's transcendent, but he's imminent. He's involved intimately in what's happening. He's not unable to sympathize. And so David says, man, God knows me. He knows my dishonor. He knows my enemies. But what a comfort that God is his advocate. I know some who have found themselves in a place of desperation. And they're just not, they don't know where to go. They turn to the news. Some, like get a news anchor to cover this story. They turn to a congressman. Or they turn to uh, maybe a rich uncle uh, to be their advocate. But God is ultimately the one who knows our plight. Today as billions starve around the world, and as children are being molested, as women are being trafficked, as wives or girlfriends are being beaten, as the marginalized and the poor are being exploited, as the defenseless are being abused, God knows the the reproach they're dealing with. He knows their plight. He's not disaffected by it. 
Now, look how his enemies wore David down in verse 20. He says, reproaches have done this. They've broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity from them, but there was none. I looked for comforters. I found none. In fact, it gets worse. Verse 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave sour wine to drink. You're in a bad spot. I'm looking for help, and then someone comes and takes advantage of you in that bad spot. Now, again, verse 21 seems to, it should, lift off the page from your eyes because we keep interpreting this psalm in light of David's suffering. But here again, we have a reference in verse 21 to Jesus. Notice that he says, poison for food. Another word to translate there is gall, uh, being offered as food. And then we have sour wine or vinegar offered as drink. Both of those are directly fulfilled at the cross. All four gospels mention the dying Christ being offered some sort of bitter beverage. In fact, John 19 says that when Jesus said, I thirst, that was to fulfill this scripture. Now, David is using this as a metaphor here. He's saying people that are around him should have comforted him. uh, And in his distress, they should have been a friend to lean on. But instead, they just added more baggage and bondage. What David experienced metaphorically, Jesus experienced literally. Jesus literally Uh, was offered sour wine in his suffering. And so we need to understand that as we read this text. Now, starting in verse 22, David begins to sing his lyrics of imprecation. Look at David's denunciation uh, in verses 22 through 28. Now, we already already read through this passage, uh, but I want to look at 10 distinct prayers through these. Um, Spurgeon called these the 10 plagues of Psalm 69. So we're going to just look at 10 of these real quick. We're not going to put them on the screen, but I want you just to follow along. First, verse 22, here's the first prayer, the first plague. He says, let their table become a snare. Okay, that table either represents security or food. He wants them to sit down and relax, like enjoy that, that meal. But I want that meal to, to feel like a trap. So he wants to take away their security. He goes on, the second one is even deeper. He says, let their peace become a trap. If they're setting peace treaties, then let that kind of be turned on them. Uh, This was quoted by Paul in Romans 11 about the Jews who reject Jesus. Uh, Let their peace become a trap. The third one is in verse 23. Look at verse 23. He says, let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. He said, oh, you're looking at me with distorted eyes? I pray that God would just finish the job and cause you to be blind. Again, this isn't sanitized. This is heavy. Right? He's praying for his enemies to be blinded. All right? This is not one of those that you put on Bible app verse of the day. Lord, let my enemies be blinded. It's not a normal thing you pray for people. Hopefully you've never prayed that for your pastor. Uh, look at verse 4. Fourthly, uh, he says, make their loins tremble continually. Their body. He wants them to feel the physical anguish that someone experiences when they're under the heavy hand of God's wrath. You know, I've prayed this before. Uh, I've prayed this for people who are falling into their sin and they're loving their sin and they're running away from God. I'm like, Lord, let their loins tremble. Let them hate their sin to the point that they'll mortify it and reject it. Let them just be so overwhelmed physically that they're sick of this sin, that they'll turn back to you. Um, So I've prayed that before. Verse 24 is the fifth one. He says, pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. Obviously, he's not praying for mercy for them, but judgment. If God's wrath is a cup, he's saying, pour it all out on my enemies. The sixth one is in verse 25. He says, may their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. This here speaks of the utter totality and finality of God's judgment. 
Uh, This particular phrase, verse 25, is quoted twice in the New Testament. It's quoted once by Jesus in Matthew 23 over Jerusalem in his sadness over their rejection of God's revelation. But it's also quoted uh, by Peter in Acts 1.20 in reference to Judas uh, who had betrayed Jesus. He says, may there can't be a desolation. And then another verse he quotes is, uh, let someone else uh, come in. And that's when they cast lots and selected Matthias. So the seventh plague is in verse 27. He says, add to them punishment upon punishment. Not just one and done. Lord, keep the wrath coming. Uh, The eighth one is in the second half there, verse 27. He says, may they have no acquittal from you. Lord, let the verdict be guilty. Don't let them off scot-free. And then in verse 28, he has the last two. First, he says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. And then the last one, he says, let them not be enrolled among the righteous. David, wow, he's asking not only for God to end their lives, but he's also asking that they would face an eternity apart from God. He's uninterested in turning the other cheek. He just wants retribution. Now, what would you wish upon your enemies? What would you wish upon your enemies today? This is hard to pray. This is a hard prayer uh, to pray. We have first world problems here, uh, so this would be different than maybe David's situation. Maybe today you'd pray, Lord, let them have uh, a, a yard full of Legos. Lord, just let them walk into the backyard and there's just Legos everywhere. Lord, I pray that their Wi-Fi says connected, but then they don't get signal. Lord, Lord, I'm praying that they have their, their food and they've got their TV show on and the food is warm and the spot is set and then they can't find the remote. Lord, that's what I'm praying for. I don't know what it might be for you, but as we read this, we need to remember that if David was the type, Jesus is the antitype. As we've seen throughout this psalm, this is a foreshadowing of what Jesus suffered. So we stand, help you understand how do we interpret this. We stand on the other side of the cross than David did. Remember, as Stephen was being stoned, uh, really the first martyr in the church, he looked to Jesus for his salvation and for his vindication, not for retribution. And he prayed for his enemies even as they executed him. That was the example Jesus set for us, and that's the example Uh, that Stephen continues in, and that should be our posture even in a hostile world. So we pray two prayers in our place as Christians. We pray, Father, save the lost, even as we pray, Father, pour out your wrath against wickedness. Uh, We're part of the new covenant. As one person pointed out, the church is not undertaking the conquest of Canaan. (laughs) Our mission, rather, is to care for souls as we take the gospel to all nations. We aim to expand and feed the flock, not to eradicate anything that isn't a sheep. That is the difference between the gospel and Sharia. And so with a powerful, faith-filled ending to this psalm, we come to the fourth section. We come to David's declaration. Look at verse 29 with me. He says, but I'm afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. David's not just praying, Lord, bring my enemies low. He's also praying, Lord, raise me up, lift me up. And he declares in verses 30 and 31, we read them earlier, I will praise the name of God with a song. I'll magnify him with thanksgiving. And this will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. Even though David had faced bitter persecution, this would not steal the song in his heart. Even when we suffer, 
God is still good. God is still sovereign. God is still at work. And our gratitude and our heart posture is more pleasing to the Lord than our liturgical outward compliance. So he says, this will actually affect others. Verse 32, when the humble see it, they'll be glad. And then he turns to the audience. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. The trials that David endured would not be wasted. No, they would serve as a great example to others. And so David then zooms out, as he did often at the end of his psalms. He would zoom out and then give kind of a worldwide vision of God instead of just a personal one. And so in verse 34 to the end, he says, Let heaven and earth praise him. Let the seas and everything that moves in them. Uh, he's saying, yeah, there's, there's the living here on the earth, but then let all of the seas. It's estimated that 80% of the life on earth is actually underwater. So he's saying let most of creation turn to worship. Let all that moves in the sea praise him. Verse 35, why? For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Did you guys catch that affirmation of hope in the midst of sinking and dying of despair? What does David say? He says, from the deepest of swamps, he now crescendos to the mountaintop of worship and declaring God's goodness and faithfulness to not only his people, Zion, but his servants and even to those who love his name. Now, there's a lot of different ways we can apply this amazing psalm uh, to our lives today. I would say it this way, if you've ever experienced a group of people, believers or unbelievers, who have come against you, then David would say, you're not alone. There's a psalm for you. If you're a wife that's married to an unbelieving man, or if you have a family member who's mocking you and taunting you for your faith, David would say, you're in good company. There's a song for you. If you've ever been the butt of a joke or the topic of gossip, David says, there's a song you should know. And he sings it with a conclusion that God will rescue his people. Now, not only is David our example, but as we've seen throughout the psalm, Jesus is our example. Just consider this, church. David was rejected by his friends and family, but Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Even his brothers did not believe in him. David said here, they hated me without cause. Well, Jesus said the world would hate me without cause and would hate all of his followers on account of him. David, at the beginning, cries out, save me as he's drowning. And a millennia later, the son of David would reach his hand out to lift up someone who is drowning, who cried out, save me, Peter. David prayed for his enemies to be struck down. Jesus prayed for his enemies to be forgiven, even as he was struck down for their sin. David here was zealous for the house of God, even though it brought reproach from others. And Jesus was consumed with zeal as he entered the temple and saw the reproach that others had for the house of God. David wanted the wrath of God to be poured out on those who deserved it. And yet Jesus bore the full wrath of the Father, though he didn't deserve it. And so to apply this section of scripture, this psalm, I really want to do it in four ways, four application points. You guys can jot these down or take a picture of these as we conclude today. Uh, the first application is this. When drowning, look to God for our salvation. You could kind of look back to verse 1. When drowning, look to God for our salvation. Don't look elsewhere. David turns to the Lord 
in his agony for strength. Remember, in the garden, Jesus turns to the Father to see if there's any other way. Is there any other way to let this cup pass from me than let it happen? And yet the Father uh, had no other plan. And so when we suffer, not if we suffer, when we suffer, where we turn to for salvation or for comfort or for hope is an, uh, often an indicator of what we worship. Okay, so uh, often we find ourselves in this place of crying out, save me, I'm drowning. Somebody come and rescue me. I need comfort. I need freedom. I need salvation. And where do we go? Some of us go to the fridge. Some of us go to the bottle. Uh, some of us go to the prescription counter. Some of us go to the sales rack. Some of us go out on the boat. Some of us go away on vacation. Some of us plop up on the couch. Some of us go into someone else's bed. Uh, some of us go off on a theological tangent. Some of us go into conspiracies. Some of us go into vanity and self-discovery or even other religions as a means of salvation. But like David and like Jesus, we need to, in our plight, look to God for our salvation. Amen? Secondly, well, say amen, but let's now practice it. It's easy to say, oh, yeah, amen, I'm going to do that. But secondly, when waiting... Trust in God's acceptable timing. Verse 13 is very instructive. He says, at the acceptable time, hear me, you'll answer. Timothy Keller says this. I love this. He says, whenever we pray, it's appropriate for us to be passionate and desperate, but also willing to wait for God's timing. Nothing makes us dependent on God's sovereign love and wisdom like having to persevere in prayer and wait for the time of his favor. Are we willing to say like David, oh, I'll pray and I'll trust you, Lord. Like Jesus, can we pray, not my will, but thy will be done. See, God knows what, what we're dealing with, and he knows who our enemies are. So we need to trust him, and we need to wait patiently. I've said this before. It seems like God is slow to act. It seems like he's the God of the 11th hour. You're like, there's no more time. Lord, you've got to come through, and that's when he comes through. Often he waits until we are completely trusting him. So trust in his acceptable timing if you're in that place right now. Thirdly, uh, apply this this way. When reviled against, it's so easy. It's so easy when someone disagrees with our view and we're ready to pounce. We see someone say something, we go, that's not right, and we're ready to jump. But I want to encourage us not to repay evil for evil. And Jesus taught us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek. And in a world that reviles back when it's opposed. What if Christians led the way in repaying kindness for evil? What if we were the ones who didn't set the tone for vitriol, but we set the tone for grace? And I'm not saying that we don't answer false teaching. No, we need to call it out, absolutely. Uh, but when someone comes against us, are we generous? Do we turn the other cheek? Well, thanks for sharing that with me. Let me consider that. Let me pray through that. I heard this week John MacArthur, uh, when he receives hate mail, he actually answers it. He'll write back, as a pastor of many years, faithful ministry, he'll write back uh, a response like, you know, thank you for your, for your consideration. I'm going to consider that. Um, man, the Lord, the Lord loves me and is faithful, and I'm so thankful for his goodness. And I'm paraphrasing what he said, but uh, he doesn't re reply back, how dare you uh, write that to me? He, he replies back, you know, almost saying, thank you. I'm going to pray that God will help me. And so don't repay evil for evil. I think of the story of Polycarp. He was the pastor of Smyrna in the second century. And he faithfully defended uh, the apostles' teaching against the early heretics. Uh, there was one particular heretic named Marcion. 
who taught that the God of the Old Testament is different than Jesus' father. You've heard that. Oh, the God of the Old Testament is different than the new. That's a Marcion idea. And so in a face-to-face meeting, Marcion said, do you know me? And Polycarp replied, yeah, I know you, you firstborn of Satan. (laughs) Awkward laughter. Um, So he was able to defend against heresy for sure. But he also had this love of his enemies. This is really cool. Eventually, persecution broke out in Smyrna, and the Roman emperor demanded that he bow and worship Caesar. And so they sent soldiers who eventually found him. The soldiers came on horseback to seize him, and the way that the story goes is that Polycarp refused to run, and instead he offered his captors hospitality and food, and he said, could you, just t- could you just tarry for an hour before we go? I'll go with you. Um, and they're ready to lock him up. I'll go with you. Just let me pray for an hour. Well, he prayed for an hour, and they let him pray another hour, and they felt bad. His captors felt bad uh, that they were uh, arresting such a venerable old man. Eventually, uh, he was burned at the stake after testifying that Jesus was the Christ in front of the stadium of Roman onlookers. And they testified that many of the unbelievers died in a very different way. This man died in a different way. Uh, and that's because even though he had the capability of repaying evil for evil, and he had the boldness to do it, he entrusted himself to God. And when reviled against, he preached the gospel, and he was put to death for it. My prayer is to have that type of spirit when we have divisive days. So don't repay evil for evil. Uh, let's turn the other cheek. Finally, number four, to apply this, when suffering, when suffering, offer praise. Verse 30. David says his worship song is more pleasing than a sacrificial animal. This will in turn gladden the heart of the humble who's watching. When we suffer and we worship, man, people are watching, our kids are watching, our neighbors are watching, our friends and family, our relatives. Remember Paul and Uh, his companions in prison and they begin to pray and they begin to worship and what happens? The prisoners take notice and God intervenes. So when we suffer, let's not waste our suffering by whining and allowing the flesh to take uh, control. I'm guilty as anyone. But let's praise and magnify the Lord even as we're wasting away outwardly. When suffering, offer praise like David did. Now as we close, I'm gonna invite our worship team uh, forward and in light of this psalm, I want us to consider Jesus, whom the writer of Hebrews tells us on the screen, Hebrews 5. He says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Listen, this morning you may have suffered or you may currently be suffering. You may be in a very similar situation that David found himself in. And I just want to encourage you this morning to cry out to the Lord. We're going to have people available as we do every week for prayer in the back of the service. And if you're maybe a married couple today and you're dealing with just opposition, I want to encourage you to receive prayer today, to cry out to God. Augustine said this, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. Do we have enemies? As Christ followers, indeed we do. And yet, even as we seek to worship and bring God glory, there are many who oppose the supremacy of God and they revile against his plan of redemption. And they'll revile against us, his servants. So know that. Be prepared for opposition. One person said this, and I love this as we close. He said, Lord willing, his justice will be meted out 
and ISIS and similar perversions of the truth will be snuffed out swiftly and completely. But we may have only seen the beginning of this evil. While it's a terrible thing to desire God's judgment to fall upon unrepentant creatures, it is worse still for evil to go unpunished. For that reason, I pray that Christians will exercise wisdom in their intercession for the persecuted church. And as we do so, let us always recognize our own pardon from sin as creatures loved by God and magnify the sovereignty and justice of the King of heaven and earth. Amen? Great opposition. And yet, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, great opportunity. So let's be leaning forward into the gospel. Let's not shrink back because we'll have people against us. It's a part of the Christian walk. Many will hate you on account of him. But praise the Lord, he'll be glorified even in our suffering, in our anguish, and in our pain. Father, we thank you that Jesus was not padded or cushioned from suffering. Your son didn't come and float along and live kind of a pseudo-human life, unacquainted with sorrow. In fact, he was known as a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering. That in his body, he bore our affliction. He, by his stripes, we are healed. He was striped, he was beaten, he was broken. He was crushed and put to death. And so, Father, we thank you, even as it's hard to thank you for the wrath that was poured out upon your son, we do, as recipients of the grace and mercy of God, we can pray, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the suffering that Jesus endured for us. Thank you, Lord, that like David, we suffer, we have enemies, and yet on this side of the cross, we can pray for our enemies and we can turn the other cheek and we can allow those burning coals to be heaped upon their head so that repentance will be granted to them. So Father, we pray today for anyone here who's in this place of brokenness and need that you would strengthen them, that they'd look to you, that they'd rest in you, and Lord, that you'd be glorified in and through your son in our lives. We love you, we worship you, and now we close with confident declaration of your goodness. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.